Welcome to Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee, a podcast brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. TIPQC exists to improve health outcomes for mothers and infants in Tennessee through our quality collaborative that will identify opportunities to optimize maternal and infant outcomes across our state and is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. The Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast is designed for medical professionals and for patients and families across the state. We will focus on all aspects of the perinatal period with special attention to reducing our maternal mortality rate. This podcast is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Welcome to the Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. I am Karen Skatzina, the Infant Medical Director of TIPQC. One of the things I like so much about these podcasts are the interesting people we get to have conversations with about topics that can help improve care for mothers and babies, not only in Tennessee, but anywhere else where this podcast is being listened to. Today's discussion will feature Dr. Sarah Beth Erickson. Dr. Erickson is a pediatrician and breastfeeding medicine provider in Knoxville, Tennessee, for the Cherokee Health Systems, the largest federally qualified health center in the region. She is passionate about improving equity in health literacy and support for families and being a breastfeeding advocate. Welcome, Dr. Erickson. Hey, thanks for having me. This is really fun and it's an honor. Well, we are thrilled that you are with us today. I wondered if you could share a little bit more about your career and what sparked your interest in breastfeeding. Yeah, that, that's a great question. And there's probably not a, a fast answer like so many of us where you think you're headed in your medical training and in residency is very different than where you end up. And it's fun now to look back and see how lots of parts of my life and things that happened in my medical career have prepared me for now. But I knew in residency that I loved working with families of new babies. We did a lot of of well baby care, like a lot of residents do. But I was in training about 11 years ago. So that was a, a time that was really interesting in peds because we were starting to really utilize the EPDS in our outpatient clinics and kind of take more ownership in postpartum depression and screening for moms. And it was also a time that the Baby Friendly Hospital Initiative was really gaining a lot of momentum. I was in Greenville, South Carolina at the time. So our hospital was starting the process of becoming certified to be baby friendly while I was a trainee. So that meant that I had to do some extra education in lactation And it also meant that we were not giving formula samples in the hospital unless it was medically indicated. So we had to take a lot more, you know, responsibility over supporting our families, providing education for them, but also bedside support. And I found that just really incredibly rewarding and enjoyable. I loved being a part of that during my training. And and so even then, the wheels were kind of turning about how would I maybe be able to apply that once I was out in the quote unquote real world. And then I ended up getting pregnant with our first baby around the time that my training ended. And 
it's funny, you know, now looking back at it, I thought I was going to be the most prepared parent in the whole wide world. I, I was a pediatrician and I was used to these sleepless nights and I've heard all the spiels about breastfeeding and, and it was a very a surprise when that turned out not to be the case. And it really was really hard. Uh, there was a lot of things I felt unprepared for in that season. And it was eye-opening as I just realized how difficult it was to find help with breastfeeding, especially we were in a new community at that time without a lot of family support. We just moved. And so I, even as a physician in the community, it struggled to figure out who I was supposed to call and, and how I needed to get help and found that process to be really discordant. And I thought, you know, if I'm having this experience, then what are other people having? And and goodness, it just helped me to see that it's a lot. It's hard for a lot of reasons. There's a lot of barriers. And so I wanted it to be different for the families that I was taking care of. And I saw an opportunity to get more education and I guess just knowledge around breastfeeding for my own practice. So that was how I started down the road of getting more training with the IBCLC process. And the rest is history, I guess you'd say. Well, thank you for sharing your story with us. You are now not only a pediatrician, but also an IBCLC. I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about your pathway to IBCLC and how those two areas complement each other. Yeah, sure. So it's looked a little different in in different practices where I've been. My husband's a neonatologist. So when we finished our training, we went off to fellowship for him and then moved again for his first, you know, real job. So I've been in several different practice settings. But like I was telling you before, the decision to get my IBCLC really came as a result of my own realization of just the the limited fund of knowledge that I had, even having a great medical education, a phenomenal residency program that I graduated from. I still felt like I didn't have the knowledge that I needed to feel really comfortable assessing breastfeeding families and the challenges that they were facing in my clinic. So at the time, there were several different options for getting additional certification in breastfeeding, but the IBCLC was was and is the highest in terms of a board certification and a credential in lactation. So I wanted to have that credibility with the families that I was serving. I think there's a lot of ways to to work on increasing your fund of knowledge. And we're all lifelong learners, but it was important to me to to have that just to build trust with my colleagues, my professional colleagues, with the families that I was taking care of. And even since then, it's been a really cool way to have a bridge to the lactation community. I have that connection with them now. And so it, it's helped me to have a lot of good conversations and relationships that I probably wouldn't have been able to otherwise have in my initial practice was a private practice and I started just dabbling once I got my IBCLC and seeing moms and babies that, that had expressed some difficulties with breastfeeding and all of us found that to be 
really rewarding because having the IBCLC essentially allowed me to increase my scope of practice beyond just the infant to the breastfeeding mom within that very limited scope of lactation. I felt comfortable taking care of of the mom too. So it allowed us to eliminate a lot of the barriers for families of infants who are already having to see a lot of people. They're already tremendously stressed to be able to say, we have somebody that can take care of you right here, right now, or just come back to our clinic tomorrow and we'll take care of you. That was a huge blessing for the families, but it was also really fun for us because it was unburdening of a lot of the other providers that might've felt like that had to either all be on them or they would need to send their patients out elsewhere into the community. And fast forward eight years later, now I'm in a community health center, which is really, it's my big, has been, and now I'm getting to live my big dream of exclusively taking care of infants and breastfeeding moms in a community health center where there's so many families that do struggle to have access to support outside of the health center. So it's been tremendously fun. It's rewarding. And, and it's, it's been a dream come true for me. I'm really grateful. That is wonderful. The support to moms and babies is so helpful. Could you talk a little bit about why it's needed and what the benefits of human milk are for babies and what are benefits to moms and families? Yeah, I sure will. And, you know, just to springboard off of that, I think even in the eight years that I've been doing this, there's a lot more recognition now that this is a really challenging time for families and it is a knowledge gap or practice gap for a lot of us as providers. So now, just in the last year, the North American Board of Breastfeeding and Lactation Medicine has formed. And in October, there's going to be the first you know, breastfeeding medicine board exam. So I think collectively as physicians, we are, we're recognizing that this is not just an important thing in people's lives and a decision to support, but it's also in the breast and breast milk is product of a functioning endocrine organ that makes a dynamic milk specifically for infants and and tailored to their needs depending on the time of their birth and the medical complications they may or may not have. So it's an exciting time to be in the breastfeeding medicine world. I think the professional landscape is really acknowledging that this is an area of need. Tennessee has seen quite a bit of disparity in infants who are breastfed. And you mentioned being really excited to have the opportunity to to support all moms and babies. In Tennessee, the highest breastfeeding initiators are Asian women and the least likely initiators of breastfeeding are non-Hispanic Blacks. In Tennessee in 2019, there was a 20 to 30% difference between these two groups, and that's higher than the difference nationally of 10 to 20%. What are your thoughts on this? That's a great question. And gosh, it's, it's a, a challenging question to, to answer quickly because there is so much certainly that we could say about that. But our 
just recently last week came across a study that showed that the desire to initiate breastfeeding is it prenatally the same across all racial and ethnic groups, which I thought was really interesting and, and exciting to think about because it, it means that our families really do recognize the importance of breastfeeding. And I've seen that reflected in my clinic for sure, because I, I ask a lot of the moms, you know, tell me about why did you decide that you wanted to breastfeed? What, what, why is that important to you? And almost unanimously, they all say, well, I know that it's really important for my baby, or I've heard that, you know, babies that get human milk are healthier. And that's why I want to try. So if what the evidence is saying is true, and I believe that it is that prior to the delivery of the baby, women desire to initiate at about the same rate, then what's different for the the racial and ethnic minorities is what happens in the hospital and after delivery. And that is, you know, you mentioned earlier what I'm really passionate about increasing health literacy prior to delivery around breastfeeding, around our families, knowing what is normal, what to expect when they deliver their baby, what they can ask for in the hospital, knowing a little bit of the anatomy and physiology, honestly, of the milk coming in and, and what's normal. And then knowing what to expect afterwards, after they're delivered, can help them to build a lot of confidence to get over a lot of the very common challenges. Because we all pretty much face challenges trying to, to breastfeed a baby. It's extremely rare that that somebody cruises through that process with, with no hiccups. And so knowing before delivery, here are the most common challenges. This is what you can expect. Here's what you should do if, if any of these things happen to you. That's very empowering for families because boost their own confidence that we expected this to happen. We expected that this was not going to be super easy. And, and here's what I can do to to help until I can get back to see, you know, the OBGYN or the pediatrician, whoever's my, my help person for that once I get home. So I think that's a really interesting finding that there are not differences in that desire to breastfeed. And I completely agree about the importance of prenatal support and education. What are other factors impacting breastfeeding? How, for instance, do you think social determinants of health impact it? Social determinants of health are really fascinating. And, you know, I did not have any exposure to that even terminology in my medical education and early in my training. It's really just been in the last couple of years as I've worked in a community health center. But as I started learning about that and seeing it applied in my own practice, it's almost like a light bulb went on, you know, of this makes sense. This is the why that helps me to, in my own mind, make sense of, of why we see these different outcomes for different people. And for listeners that might not know, like I didn't know a few years ago, a social determinants of health are just things about the environment where we live and learn and work and play that impact health outcomes. So it's things like, well, there's 
positive ones and negative ones. I think a lot of attention is given to the negative ones, things like your neighborhood or or housing, having reliable transportation or not having that reliable transportation are things that impact your ability to not only access health care, but that may impact levels of, of stress that you're exposed to chronically that then go on to, to impact your risk for chronic disease and how that disease manifests in your life. But just last year, Dr. Kate Standish in Boston published a paper about how social determinants of health are uniquely reflected in breastfeeding. And again, it was just, it was cool to read through her paper and to think, yes, you know, a resounding yes for what I've been seeing. And it's helpful to see it in writing that we know that women that have different levels of education, that impacts their breastfeeding success, not just education formally, like high school or college, but education around breastfeeding specifically and what we were just talking about in terms of the prenatal education and and self-efficacy about breastfeeding challenges. Another example is housing. Like we mentioned, women that have unstable housing may end up in lots of different homes with different people that may or may not support breastfeeding. And there probably is not a really private place for her to nurse her baby. So she's a lot more subjected to opinions that aren't on board or, or even um, public breastfeeding with people that she may not know as well. Homelessness is the extreme of that. And we know for sure that many, how I guess, protective homeless shelters don't have special accommodations for breastfeeding women. So even just those examples help you to see, you know, this is, it's not as simple as just, am I going to breastfeed or not? And I think for a lot of people, there's still that misconception over, well, why don't people just do it? If it's better for the baby or it's better for mom, more people should just breastfeed. And what talking about social determinants of health does is is sheds light on how many barriers that there are, not just individually, but also systemically for families accomplishing their goals. And I think once we shine light on that and we can, we can start to learn and to listen to our patients, their own very unique lived experiences for how we can best support them. It's it's not a one size fits all. Yeah, I love how you described that it was kind of like a light bulb went on. There's lots of things that we don't necessarily learn in our initial formal health professions training that comes in time. And I just applaud your commitment to helping all moms and babies. As you said, challenges are not uncommon with breastfeeding. I wondered if you could tell us about your interest in human milk donation and the Tennessee Milk Bank. Yes, I sure will. Challenges are, they are so common, but we also talk a lot in the the breastfeeding world about risk factors for lactation failure. Understanding as physicians that there are unique things about a person's medical history that put them at higher risk for not meeting their breastfeeding goals. 
it's a pretty long list, but things like having multiples, delivering preterm, having insulin resistance, hypertension, chronic illness, different medications certainly can all impact the time period that it takes for milk to come in and the amount of milk that comes in, even when it does. For women that deliver prematurely, there's even more risk to not being able to successfully breastfeed. Things like being separated from their baby, for example, not being able to do skin to skin because the infant's critically ill. Maybe the mother's critically ill, and that was the reason for preterm delivery. And then, you know, longer term, things like needing to return to work and being separated from her baby before the baby's discharged from the hospital. All are risk factors for her milk supply not being adequate to meet her baby's complete needs. And so I am really so passionate about raising awareness about the importance of human milk donation to really bridge that gap for families, for families desiring to breastfeed, that there is a provision for human milk for the baby until mom has a full milk supply or is is well enough to be able to produce milk for her baby. It's also a really important part of the health equity conversation because not all babies may be able to have access to their mom's own milk, but certainly not having human milk places you at a significantly higher risk of morbidity and mortality, especially when we're talking about our NICU babies, the the VLBWs less than 1,500 grams. So it's not necessarily just a feeding choice like breast or bottle, ketchup or mustard. It really becomes a, a conversation about milk as medicine in that population. And human milk creates health equity for those babies. It gives them the same opportunity as their, I'll call them peers, you know, in in the unit that may be able to get their mom's own milk. It gives them the, the same opportunity at a good outcome that they wouldn't have otherwise had. And a great paper, really interesting, came out about a year ago now that that actually looked at disparities in access to human milk in the NICUs. And certainly now it's documented that there's risk of not receiving human milk if you have things like state Medicaid or if you deliver in a safety net hospital or in the South, like where we are, you know, you're any of those things place you at higher risk of not being able to receive human milk, which in those itty-bitty babies certainly then places you at a lot higher risk for poor outcomes with things like neck and other complications of extreme prematurity. So human milk donation and milk banks are such a valuable resource for, for moms and babies and families, and especially, as you mentioned, some of those populations in the NICU. Also wanted yeah. to ask you about the new uh, care reimbursement for outpatient lactation services that took effect on June 1st. What kind of impact do you think that will have? I think the care moving into that is a tremendous statement in support of breastfeeding that really encourages a lot of people doing that work in the community that like what I was describing of of seeing all the the challenges, the barriers that families face to meeting their breastfeeding goals, 
for them to to say we we see you and we value your work enough to cover this service is a really important and strong first step. I think that it's going to be a process of of figuring that out for both TenCare as the payer and for professionals in that space, navigating how how to get credentialed, how to be able to provide this service. But Rome wasn't built in a day and we're heading in the right direction. I think that that is a huge, a huge win for the state of Tennessee, a really important move in the right direction. And I also think that it was a really big deal that our state extended postpartum coverage for Medicaid to 12 months. That hasn't, I don't think, really been a part of the breastfeeding conversation like the benefit you just described, but women being able to access medical care for longer. We both know that breastfeeding hopefully doesn't stop at 60 days. We want to be able to support our families for longer than that. And so having expanded coverage for, for moms makes a huge difference for that conversation too. I think that's a great point. So yeah, very exciting opportunities for moms and babies and, and professionals in Tennessee, I wondered, are there any other infant nutrition or breastfeeding resources that you'd like to highlight for health professionals or for moms and families? Sure. You know, for health professionals, I have been so fortunate to do a lot of continuing medical education through IABLE, the Institute of Advancing Breastfeeding and Lactation Education. And they offer CME, some is free, some is very reasonably priced for any physician that's interested in really expanding that fund of knowledge, like what I was talking about earlier. We also regularly in my clinic are using Lactmed and eLactantia is a new resource for medications that I'm using regularly to look up what is the recent evidence on medications that may or may not impact lactation. And there's a lot of pharmacokinetic information in there if you're trying to figure out you know, when to time a medication with feeding the baby, those kinds of things. Both of those resources are tremendously helpful and I think can be used synergistically, Lactamed and Elactantia for physicians taking care of breastfeeding moms. For families, I don't think that it can be overstated that it's just really important to, if they have the option of who they choose for a pediatrician, doing some interviews before a baby is born and and asking about how the practice supports breastfeeding, what resources that they may have within their clinic that support breastfeeding. My hope is that with TenCare expanding that benefit, there's going to be more pediatric practices that have lactation available within their clinic to see families and to make families aware of the breastfeeding hotline. That is such a gift within our state to have mm-hmm. to have that. And I still think there's lots of professionals and lots of families that aren't aware of that resource. And especially Spanish-speaking families having access to someone who's an IBCLC and able to speak Spanish 24 hours a day is that is tremendous. So that could be very unburdening for the healthcare providers and the families to know that that's always in their pocket to have their support. It truly is a fantastic resource. 
And what we can do is put a little more information and links in the show notes for these resources that you mentioned today. What else is needed related to breastfeeding to support the health of mothers and babies? Goodness, when is our next podcast? We give you another hour. <laughs> We'd love to have uh, you back. Uh, okay. I think that it's really easy as a healthcare provider to just get overwhelmed, right, by the the massive amount of need that there is. And even, you know, seeing that we're making tremendous progress, we are getting closer and closer to meeting our breastfeeding goals for initiation in our state. And yet, you know, we continue to expose all of these areas of greater need and more work to be done. And, and it can feel daunting, but I think that I would love to just encourage people to, to take the next step forward. If you feel like you want to support breastfeeding families more to think of a small way that you can change your practice and, One of my favorite is just by asking moms and dads, other support people, you know, what challenges are you facing with breastfeeding? Instead of just asking how they're feeding the baby to disarm them by saying, what challenges are you having? You know, we assume that there's challenges, that this is difficult and listen. And even just in asking that one question, it gives them permission to to open up and be more vulnerable about how they may or may not be meeting their goals or, and it gives you the opportunity to to build that trust and, and to see how you can either encourage or step in to hopefully get them the support that they need to meet their goals. Of course, I would love to see more people getting their IBCLC and, and pursuing breastfeeding medicine along with me. I'd love to be a resource for anybody interested in that or talking more about that in the future. Well, that is a wonderful offer. Thank you so much again, Dr. Erickson, for talking with me today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee presented by TIPQC. TIPQC is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Do you have ideas for a future guest or topic or even have a question you would like answered on upcoming episodes? Visit www.tipqc.org, that's T-I-P-Q-C.org, and click on podcast to submit suggestions and questions to our podcast team. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast to be the first to know when new episodes are available and find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube to stay in the loop with our active projects and other relevant news relating to perinatal health in Tennessee.